Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts, and I interview authors of art and architecture books published by Yale University Press. Today, in a special October episode, I'm talking to Professor Owen Davies about his new book, Art of the Grimoire, an illustrated history of magic books and spells. Professor Owen Davies, uh, teaches about social history at the University of Hertfordshire and is president of the Folklore Society. He has written numerous books on the history of witchcraft, magic, and the supernatural. This new book, Art of the Grimoire, is, in the words of Owen's fellow scholar of the supernatural, Ronald Hutton, quote, simply the best illustrated history of magical texts yet written, covering the whole of history and of the planet with equal erudition. Owen, welcome, and thank you for your time. As Professor Hutton says, the book covers the whole of history and of the planet. So where and when do we find evidence of the earliest written magic? The earliest we find, not surprisingly, is in the ancient world in, in Mesopotamia, sort of you know, often called the cradle of civilization, but it is, it is the birthplace of writing. It's the birthplace in since then of history as we know it in terms of recorded, the recorded past. And this is, this is roughly, roughly around 5,000 years uh, ago or so. Uh, and the first writing is essentially a technology. You know, it's the creation of a technology of communication. And it's, it's called cuneiform, and it's basically an imprint with a stylus or a piece of wood or whatever, with a series of marks of a, a sort of um, a, a pictogrammic sort of uh, language um, on these clay tablets. And they, they, they can pack a lot of, uh, in a sense, wordage into these small clay tablets, and thousands of them survive uh, today, which is amazing, considering they're made of clay. Um, and they record all the sorts of things that a society, a civilization, early civilization um, gets up to. So it's about administration, it's about matters of warfare, it's, it's simple matters of communication between um, trades, trades people, for example. But amongst them, right from the beginning, the earliest ones, we get um, these examples of magic. And that's magic in terms of people needing to write down spells um, for use and to pass on. But also sometimes we find communications between a client and a magician priest about this is my problem, what can you do for me sort of thing. So it's, it's a fascinating insight not only to magic, but how magic is part of culture and society at that time. So they, they establish writing and the things that they need to do are, you know, determine how much a certain quantity of grain costs and write down spells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's 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 you know it's, it's just, it, it is amazing that you know the very from the very beginning you get a snapshot in those first you know few few hundred years or first millennium of, of writing you get a snapshot of uh, the whole of a society uh, you know from minutiae of as you say grain trade grain trade to you know issues between a husband and wife or whatever it's all there. What do we know anything about the people who wrote about? spells and magical things in particular from some early times we do yeah and it's it's you know until until the the, the sort of the era of mass literacy um you know it's obviously only a small group of people um who can actually write and even more so at this time so you know we're looking at sort of um the most literate people there the people who are creating a lot of these are going to be 
either priests or they're going to be members of the various uh, courts. So it's a small number. Um, and but when it comes to magic, it, we are largely looking at this 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 group of magician priests. It's difficult to separate out because obviously the, these these priests are in a sense the the, the officials of official religion at the time and at the same time and the nature of magic religion at the time they're using their services their religious knowledge their relationships with the gods um, as a means of altering and changing for the better the lives of their flock their customers Let's talk a little bit more about the question of authorship which is a, a theme that runs through the book as in many instances, uh, efforts were made to obscure the identity of the author of a book of magic. Is, is that something that is in play from the very beginning, or is that does that start to come up more later? It's a bit more later because the, the re, this really early stuff is just about recording spells and stuff. It's they're, they're not books per se. You know, they're just these little blocks, um, and so there's not there's not that sense of claiming authorship of a clay tablet. You know, it, it's when we get to these much bigger voluminous forms of writing surface and we're, we're largely here talking about papyrus and the invention of papyrus rolls where you can stitch together a whole series to create scrolls that are often up to 15 meters long so in here you could you're we're actually talking about a book length body of writing um and this is where issues of authorship start to come in because um these, particularly, the, we're talking about the magic scrolls, papyrus scrolls, which again are often you know, an intertwining of um, Egyptian religion, or Greco-Egyptian religion at the time, um, with these more mundane, matter-of-fact issues of magic in the service of, uh, of your well-being and health and good fortune. Uh, and it's at this point where we start getting the idea of ancient authors as being the sources of wisdom. And this is this in this period, sort of just you know, around 2,000 years ago, that we start getting certainly uh, in certain parts of the, the Near East, the, the authorship from Judaic um, biblical characters, most notably Solomon. King Solomon. So here's one of the, and Moses as well. So Moses and Solomon becomes two of the early forms. So they're borrowing from Judaic and then later, you know, Christian Judaic um, religion. Um, but, but the content of some of these, these, these large scrolls um, are very much a mix of religions. So there, there was less of a distinction between what was strictly religious and what was magical than there may be yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is this is this is the perennial sort of challenge for historians um, of magic. Is you, 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 sometimes you just can't unpick it. The relationship between magic and religion changes from one culture to the next, and you know, one person's religion is often another person's magic. One person's magic is often another person's religion. So you, right from the sort of the early Greeks, you get the idea, and the magic, the term magic itself comes from this idea that there are non-Greeks who have these priesthoods who can practice these things which are harmful in warfare to, to the Greeks. So the whole idea is that the, the, the magic is the religion of the other, the other people, the other hmm. people who are causing you trouble. You mentioned the biblical King Solomon. How, how did he become implicated in magic making? <laughs> well, this this it, it's all to do with the you know, quite graphic story of, of Solomon uh, and the demon and the building of the temple, the great temple. 
Um, so there are passages in, in the Old Testament, um, which is uh, all about the fact that he basically has these conversations with demons uh, and that's the degree to which he can control them to help rather than hinder the building of the great temple. So the whole idea that he is not only the, the sort of, you get, which you get related with Freemason, that Solomon is this great you know, sort of architect that must have some more extraordinary powers or God-given powers to be able to create the, 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 great, the great temple, etc. But also the fact that he can control demons. And so fairly early on, we have the whole idea of Solomon's ring, a ring that he has, which enables him um, to, to Kind of harness or bind, and a lot of a lot of um, magic at this period in different cultures um, is is about binding devils or evil spirits. The act of binding, holding them down, so that in a sense, making sure that they can't enter your home, that they can't enter um, your life, uh, is fundamental. And here's here's this archetype in a you know from a, from an ancient religion who does exactly that. And so were there multiple kinds of magic, the kind of magic that was the, you know, <clears throat> territory of people who could wield it, you know, King Solomon or other, and then magic that could be performed by anybody if they knew how to do it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you've, got, you've got different genres of magic early on, as you have in the early modern period or even even today so you've got the whole idea of conjuration which is about um, communication or binding or seeking help from or or, or trying to stop um, the whole denizens of the spirit world whether they're the angels or devils or demons or other forms of uh, being later on fairies for example so that's all about conjuration um, then you've got kind of simple spells which are can be based on whatever religion. So it's in the, this is where you're using aspects of some religious liturgy or ritual, but um, you're doing it not for spiritual reasons necessarily, but using it in your everyday lives to, to help with, with uh, you know harm, dealing with misfortune, dealing with illnesses. So you've got that form where kind of you know aspects of religious practice are put to kind of more mundane purposes, which is essentially one definition of magic. Um, then you've got you've got what we call natural magic, um, which was um, very big, particularly in antiquity, and the likes of Pliny the Elder, the great author Pliny the Elder, who wrote a huge, voluminous number of uh, writings on natural magic. And this is the whole idea that uh, the gods or goddess or goddesses or God in the Christian world um, basically have imbued the environment with secrets and secret powers. This is the whole idea that certain gemstones have certain magical properties, um, certain types of um, animal and certain types of plant. So uh, particularly in, in, the, in the Near East and Middle East and the sort of cradle there, say cradle of civilization and cradle of written magic, um, things like um, scorpions, which are obviously a, a great problem, but scorpions are also sought to have inherent properties as well. So you've got magic against scorpions and crocodiles, but you've also got um, the ways in which crocodile and, and scorpions can be used because they have this inherent sort of magical potency as well. Of course, herbs goes right back to, to this early phase. We've got some of those cuneiform tablets about which herbs and stones, for example, what, what they can do in terms of um, health and cure and protection. So kind of a bundle, there's a whole variety of different types of magic. And so the goal of of putting this all down, of course, is to communicate to both the people in the society you're living in, but also presumably 
people yet to come. And yet you write about certain documents that contain actually made up languages or what you call pseudo scripts. What what would be the what would be the reason for that? What are some examples of that? And and how do people in your field interpret the use of language in this context that can't really be understood by anybody? It's been a a, a challenge for scholars um, whether they're working on, on a, in sort of magical sources and magical gems, for example, with writing them in antiquity or whether it's in the early modern period, because we find these. Uh, what look like languages, and yet no one can decipher them. So the, you know, the long issue has been: Are these actually languages that we just don't understand, or are they just actually gibberish? You know, they're pseudo languages that don't actually mean anything. So that's it's, it's another understandable debate when you're faced with um, some of these strange sorts of uh, lettering and uh, word formations. Uh, and we we get examples from this, you know, particularly on um, sort of Greco-Roman. Um, amulets and talismans where you get um, an image perhaps of a god or a goddess uh, say for example mercury uh, and, and around it you'll get certain lettering or, or phrases uh, which can't be deciphered and the general feeling now i think is that this is just a classic sort of magical technique on behalf of the person who creates magic the magician so to speak and the person who's writing it down or the person who's creating talismans and charms and things is to create a language which no one can understand but your clients perceive that you alone can do it so it's like i have the secrets i have these special words of power i have this special language that no one else has so you you my clients certainly don't have and so um, it seems to be that that's probably the predominant case. In other words, there's no point looking to try and decipher it because it has no meaning. The whole point is that it has no meaning, that no one can understand it, which means that the, that the person who claims they do, um, um, in a sense, has a superior uh, reputation on this. And so we, we find that in antiquity, but we also find it um, in, in, for example, in the early modern period where we have pseudo-Hebraic, quite old so we have something that looks like hebrew but is actually meaningless it's, it's gobbledygook the whole point again is to create a, a, a language which looks magical so we get this also in um in early modern spain where um we get a pseudo script which looks like islamic writing uh, and so these charms and talismans with this pseudo islamic arabic texts uh, are writing and, and lettering and words on them um, are sold to Spanish Christians uh, as a form of magical language, even though um, it's neither uh, an Arabic script uh, nor um, has any meaning at all. It just looks like it. And again, for those who don't who can't read Arabic, it's a strange, mysterious language of magic. Mm. So there's the language component of these, and some some are significantly text-based or entirely text-based, but there's also um, quite a bit of non-text imagery, some of which is quite detailed and quite beautiful. Would you talk a little bit about um, Japanese yokai encyclopedias, which you write about in the book, and they seem like a particularly interesting example of the intersection of art, high art and magic books? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, and obviously that's at the heart of the book itself is actually the imagery and its interplay with the, with the texts. Um, you know, when we were talking about cuneiform earlier, that's just writing. You don't get images with it. It's, it's simply a form of written communication. But when we get to the use of papyrus and we got the use of inks, for example, and then obviously later parchment and then paper, when you can actually, in a sense, 
um, use different coloring, uh, but also you have a surface on which you can do fluid curves, for example, and you can basically create artwork on these surfaces with the right materials and tools. So from early on, we, we start getting the development of a different genres of image associated with magical texts. Uh, and one of the main ones, which we get on things called Aramaic incantation bowls, which are from around 500 to 800 AD, written, as it suggests, in Aramaic, but also with phrases from um, Hebrew and uh, references to the Christian Bible as well. But one of the fundamental images there is demons. So in other words, you have this sorts of text and you have these binding spells and at the center of the bowl, you have these depictions of these demons. And that's quite common early on is that when you're trying and dealing with angels or spirit world, that you actually represent them in the magic text as well. This is what they look like sort of thing. Um, and that, that follows through the centuries and in different cultures. And you find it early on in Chinese magic, for example. Um, and the imagery of demons there. And one of the more later expressions is, as you mentioned, this sort of yokai text from the yokai encyclopedias from 18th century Japan, um, which have these exquisite sort of um, pen and ink drawings of these different types of spirits and demons in Japanese culture, which is absolutely rich with a myriad of different spirits and different landscapes and environments. And there'd been these sorts of yokai scrolls and you know, these, these depictions, these drawings, um, sometimes with magic, sometimes just explaining what these demons are and what they do and where they live. Um, we find those back into the, at least the 16th century. And beyond that, there are some Chinese examples from earlier on of, of, of these collections of images and, and texts associated with explaining them. But they kind of reached their apotheosis in 18th century Japan, and particularly with the great artist Sekian, who... Uh, he and a few others kind of take it in a more revolutionary way because in the sort of from the 17th century into the early 18th century, these texts have been on scrolls again. Scrolls is the normal form of rolling it up. And what Sekian does with his encyclopedias of yokai or demons uh, is essentially create a book form whereby you have a page rather than a scroll, you have a page which you turn and each page has one yokai. So it's, this is why it's kind of like an encyclopedia, and each page has a yoko with exquisite image on it with a brief description uh, of what the demon is and its name. And, and so you get these whole texts, um, which aren't magical per se, but are basically you know, a compendia of magical beings, which then can be used and kind of as like a unit construction can be taken to, you know, out of context or taken to pieces and put in other forms of, uh, of writing and magical texts. You know, you mentioned earlier that um, magic is one, you know, magic for one person is another's religion and vice versa. As we move through time and there starts to be more movement around the world, and so there's more contact between cultures and their representations of magic books and spells, how, how does that shift the idea of magic as the religion of the other, or does it? It, it, it creates new fusions, um, and there's a, you know, there's a couple of you know, good examples of this, which are, which are also in, in the book. One is um, with cheaper and cheaper print. Um, we get the creation of magic books in Europe, particularly France and Germany, which then spread through the colonies in the 19th century, and then we get absorbed into sorts of what's called syncretic religious 
movements or ideas and beliefs, particularly in the Caribbean, but also in, in the Indian Ocean, in the French colonies, or Union, for example, where these European books of magic, which stretch back and have allusions to medieval texts, are actually taken on and used by indigenous practitioners, sometimes mixed with aspects of Catholicism, particularly, um, but also uh, in indigenous non-Christian religions as well. So the books, the books are not, uh, you know, usurping a culture in any way. They're actually being taken on board and assimilated and used in very specific and creative ways by indigenous cultures. And you get this also in South America, where when in the late 19th, early 20th century, we get a boom in cheap Cyprianus books. And these are books of magic attributed to St. Cyprian. Um, and by the 1950s, um, they are being used or, or have a great reputation amongst indigenous um, cultures in, in Peru, for example, and in Colombia as well. Uh, and they get reinterpreted. So it's not just taking it on, as I say, it's the whole idea that they become part of a much bigger pantheon of magical um, beings and practices and authorship there. The other example we get is obviously um, more sinister, is obviously the colonial context where we get um, antiquarians, missionaries, basically confiscating the magical texts, the written magical culture of other other peoples. Um, a good example would be with amazing magical books um, called Pustahas from the Batak in northern Sumatra. Uh, and these are made of bark, paper um, but often have these intricately carved exquisitely carved wooden covers and so you can imagine they were they were you know uh, art curiosities for um, missionaries um, for traders um, who were going there and then obviously then ended up in European collections but essentially what's happening is they're one way or another either confiscating or purchasing them from the magician priests who created them but one way or another they're basically extracting the magical culture um, and taking away its heritage. So that's a much more sinister, classic sort of colonial appropriation taking place. So different things happening at the same period here with, with what they call globalization. Mm. And it, you write also about an interesting unintended effect of established religions, interest in suppressing certain kinds of magical texts in Reformation Europe, um, and that the efforts, in fact, rather backfired. Well, uh, you, during the Reformation, you've got Catholics accusing Protestants of, of, of magic and devil worship of being Satan's followers, and vice versa. The Protestants obviously think that the Vatican is the, the seat of the devil um, and that, 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 that the devil has corrupted the, the Christian church, and therefore that's why the need for the Protestant Reformation. So you've got this ding-dong going on between the two, each accusing other of superstition uh, and promoting superstition. Um, and quietly in the background, you have got printers who are um, taking some of the late medieval magical manuscript texts um, and also the manuscripts of what called Renaissance magicians, famously Cornelius Agrippa, and um, using their names and creating, in a sense, a new print form of grimoire with false attribution again often. So there's a thing called the fourth book of occult philosophy, which is a trip which is overtly magical and has conjurations in it. And it's attributed to a gripper and it gets printed in Germany and then in the mid 17th century gets printed in, in, in 
Britain and elsewhere. Um, and it's attributed to Gripper, but Gripper would have absolutely been horrified, and even though Gripper was an occultist and interested in things like geomancy and astrology, he was not interested in conjurations. He thought this was that's that's you know fairly iniquitous sort of activity. So we get the classic new sort of classic thing of false attribution of texts, which we've seen right back in antiquity, and then with print and the diffusion in large numbers of books that we get the creation of a new body of of magicians um, whose names have been taken in vain. Francis Bacon is another one, Roger Bacon, the great medieval scientist uh, and clergyman who becomes a grimoire author in the 16th and 17th centuries. So fascinating new movement there and the ways in which magic is print itself changes the nature of uh, existing magical texts. Are there visual elements that that you that you see repeatedly repeated over the entire history of grimoire and magic books? Well, we've got, we say we've got the images of demons and spirits. It's one thing. Um, certainly, over the last you know from the medieval period onwards, sort of last you know, seven eight hundred years, um, the idea of things called sigils, um, which are these often round sort of talismanic uh, images. Um, sometimes which contain various magic symbols, sometimes pseudoscripts as well. And these can be used in different ways. Sometimes in the grimoires, they, they show you these round talismanic figures with their symbols and images inside. And the instruction is to draw this out on a piece of paper or on the ground and you stand within it. So it, sometimes it can be a magic circle, instructions for magic circle. But sometimes these are used as talismans. Otherwise, the instruction is to draw it on a piece of parchment and wear it as a form of personal protection, for example. Sometimes it's a form of meditative process that they tell you to draw this as, as part of, in a sense, a more spiritual meditative form of magic in terms of communicating uh, with the spirit world. But we see these round images um, reprinted and recreated and adapted through manuscript to print and print to manuscript. We get them in the cheap magic books um, that are diffused across parts of Europe and then across the world, which have no meaning really for the people using They just know it's magical. And if I copy this out, um, you know, the instructions, um, then that, that'll help me. And um, fascinating thing is with the internet today is that um, certainly last few years, um, a couple of sigil generators have been created, um, which is following in this long, long tradition. It's fascinating. They're using the internet. And basically what you do is you just type in your thoughts or your desire, and it creates one of these signals for you, which you can use as you want. The, the internet is a great book of magic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so that, that's an interesting question, though. I mean, for the length of time that you've been teaching about this kind of thing in a university setting, have you noticed um, – your students bringing any new perspectives to the study of the history of magic and magic books? Yeah, well, I mean, I started re you know, researching magic in the days, pre-internet days, obviously, uh, pre-digitization days. Um, and I think what, what the internet has done is further democratize magic. So in other words, as never before, all these, the secrets of magic, which, you know, at one time were, passed around, you know, in a few hundred manuscripts across Europe, are now, you know, just a, a click, click of a mouse that's there for free. You can read it. And the, the key point is you can do what you want with it, you know. So 
um, you know, I've had, you know, I've had a few students who are, who are practitioners themselves. And so it's quite empowering because um, if we think about early 20th century magician, which used to be part of particularly Wicca, which was part of a coven, you had a hierarchy and you had various orders and you had to climb up the orders. With the internet today and, and, and the diffusion of global magical uh, traditions out there, uh, uh, as I say, just for free, you know, having to purchase expensive books, um, you can kind of create your own sort of syncretic, personal magical traditions out of all the magical material that's available and the images and the text as well. And, 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 and in a sense, create and personalize your own form. I think that's the key thing that's, that's been happening certainly in the last 10, 15 years. And that's existing alongside the con- you know, continuation of more hierarchical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. The book is fascinating and wonderful. Thank you again, Owen, for the book and for talking to me about it today. Thank you, Jessica. The book we've been talking about is Art of the Grimoire, an illustrated history of magic books and spells. It's available now in bookstores and online. Thank you for listening, and please visit us at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.